Okay, it's really good to see all of you here today. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that as we come to this very important passage that you will help us to focus, to help us to truly understand and to let your word work in us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, what was the biggest news last week? Uh, for those of you who uh, follow football, I guess the biggest news might be uh, the arrest uh, of uh, many senior uh, FIFA uh, officials and uh, who are charged with bribery. Maybe the biggest news is the stepping down of Seth Blatter, who has been the president of FIFA for five terms. Now, I was reading a newspaper article uh, about how really all these events uh, that we see uh, really represent a, a, a crisis of confidence in society uh, against its institutions and its authority figures, that really there's a loss of trust. If you look at surveys all around the world, there's a worldwide loss of trust in authority, in institutions, and in figures. So rather than having trust, everything is tainted with distrust. But it's not just a, a lack of trust in uh, institutions or authorities, but I think it reflects a, a wider societal distrust of the very idea of truth. That there is no such thing as truth in the world that we live in. There's just opinion. There's your opinion. There's my opinion. Your position, my position. Your agenda, my agenda. And we twist the truth to fit our agenda. So people distrust what they read in newspapers. People distrust what they read in the internet. And basically everybody just has an opinion. And it seems to have come to the stage where in society, if you say that you have the truth, the absolute truth, and nothing but the truth, people feel that you're just being arrogant. That in this world, there is no such thing as the absolute truth. But how different it is for us as Christians, because as we look at today's word, just three verses, right? Um, it, it seems to us very clearly that as Christians, we have a very different view about the truth and about what we trust. So it begins in verse 13 uh, by continuing on what is said in verse 2, where Paul begins once again in, in uh, saying, We also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you, who believe. So Paul gives thanks here, as he did in verse 2, for the Thessalonian Christians. But here he gives specific thanks that they receive the word of God. Now, they didn't receive the word of God because, as many people commonly say today, God spoke to me in a vision or I had a dream or, you know, he whispered in my ear. He didn't say that they received the word of God in that supernatural way. But rather he says that they received the word of God in a very normal way, in a very mundane and a very dull and routine way. They heard it with their own ears and they heard it from the voice of the Apostle Paul. But the words that came out of Paul's mouth was not the word of man or a word of man, but rather it was the word of God. And I think a very important principle is at work here, right? Which is, I put it up here, which is God spoke through the Apostle Paul, using the personality and the person of Paul to speak to his church, to speak to the Thessalonian Christians. 
It doesn't mean that somehow Paul became possessed and you know spoke with a different voice or something. That would be very scary, right? But rather, God spoke using the very personality of Paul, but the content and the meaning was all Paul's. Sorry, it was all God's, not Paul's, right? It was the very word of God. Now, I think this is very, very important for us today, even though you may not realize it, but one day, hopefully you will remember what I'm preaching today, and you remember 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 2, because many people today, if you go and go to Kinokunia or Popular or whatever, and you, you, you know, you read books about what they're saying about the Bible, they say that actually there is no such thing as the Word of God. But rather, if you look at the Bible, it is not the Word of God, it is the Word of man which interpret their experience of God. Okay, now that's a very different thing from the Word of God because when we say that it is the Word of God, that means it comes from God Himself through Paul to us and it is actually God speaking to us. Because many people will say, well, you know, Paul, he's just giving us his interpretation of God. You know, he has a gender bias, so he wrote in a particular way. He doesn't like homosexuals, so he wrote in a particular way. He's basically just a chauvinistic Jewish old man. And he's very different from, uh, you know, the Apostle John or the Apostle Peter or the Apostle James or Jesus himself. And what happens is, uh, as a result, there is no longer truth in the Bible, but rather opinion. And there's no longer any unity in the Bible, but rather different people having their own interpretations of God. But actually, what the Bible says very clearly here, what Paul says very clearly himself, is that even though they heard from Paul and the the people working with him, they didn't hear it as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God. Now, this ties in with what Paul says in other parts of the Bible. If you look here in 2 Timothy, Paul says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, then in 2 Peter, it says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Now, pay attention here, because what he's actually saying is that what Paul writes is equivalent to Scripture, and Scripture is God-breathed. There's a logical connection being made here, right? So, you know, I want you to turn over to your neighbor, and I want you to breathe on them. Okay, so but, but make sure that you brush your teeth this morning, okay? But this picture of having God breathe is a very powerful one, because it represents that from the very core of God, from His very essence, God speaks to us, through human agents like the Apostle Paul. And what that means is that his letters, the letters of Paul, the letters of Peter, the letters of John, the letters of James, they recognized it not as their own words, but as the words of God. And that's what's being said here in the book of Thessalonians. That the Thessalonians heard Paul, and they heard it not as the voice of man, but the voice of God. Now, we... 
can be very arrogant in our age and say, well, you know, what do these Thessalonian Christians know? Maybe they were just very ignorant, foolish people in the first century. And there is, I guess, a certain mood in our culture which sort of looks down at all the people in the past and says, well, you know, we are the smarter people because we live in the 21st century. Everybody who lived in the 1st century, in the 15th century, in the 10th century, they all don't know anything because they don't, they're not smart like us, right? But actually, if you look at the next slide, if you look at uh, 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 the history of uh, uh, Thessalonica, it wasn't some country, you know, small outpost somewhere, but actually Thessalonica, which you can see here, was the capital of the region of Macedonia. Macedonia was this whole big region, okay? So Thessalonica was actually the, the, a capital, a large city of the time. It was a trading center. It was also a port, right? As you can see, it's it right next to the sea. It was a major trading center. It was known for its philosophy, its teaching, and its learning. And these were sophisticated cosmopolitan people. They were like Singaporeans, okay? And at that time, we know for sure that the Thessalonians would have been very exposed to all sorts of itinerant teachers. Um, people like Greek philosophers and teachers would come around and they would teach for money. They would have uh, people like the Anthony Robbins and the Anthony Coos of today going there and teaching them and expecting to be paid. But yet, they were discerning and they were able to see that the words of Paul were not like the words of all these other teachers. They were the actual words of God. Now this came about not because they were smarter than other people or more insightful or their brains were more penetrating. But as we saw last week in the next slide, it was because when the word of God, when the gospel, the good news of Jesus came to them in chapter 1 verse 4, it came to them not simply with words, but also with power, and with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. And that's why Paul thanks God for them. In chapter uh, 1, verse 2, he thanked God for them because the work, the, the gospel was working in their power. And now in verse 13, he thanks God for them again because they recognized that his words were not just man's words, but the word of God. Now what does it mean that it is the word of God in our context today in Singapore. You see, it must mean that the Bible, Paul's words, are absolute truth because they come from within God himself. You see, if you have your opinion and I have my opinion, I may be right and you may be wrong some of the time and, and, and you may be right and I may be wrong some of the time because we're all human and we're all ignorant and we all have flaws and holes in our own thinking. But that is never the case with my opinion versus God's truth. If it's the word of God, it can never be wrong and I can never be right against God's truth. And I think this is so important for us to hear because in today's world, it is actually saying that the word of God that we read in the Bible is equivalent to just an opinion. An opinion equal to anybody's opinion. And therefore, it is all relativized. But it is not relativized because if it is the word of God, and the Bible says it is the word of God, Paul's teaching is the word of God, and the Bible itself is the word of God, then it must have absolute authority and truth over all other opinions 
Even my opinion and your opinion. And I think this is also very important because in today's world as Christians, not the secular world, but as, in the Christian world, people, especially Christians, have lost faith in the Bible and Paul's teaching as the Word of God. Instead of seeking to hear God from the Bible and Paul's teaching, what do they do? They look for dreams, or they look for visions, or they look for that still small voice in my, you know, of God speaking to, to me in my head. But surely these fascinations with visions and dreams and God speaking to me in a supernatural way is a dangerous distraction. Right? I mean, there might, there may be some people in Singapore today who call themselves apostles, but they are not apostles in the same way as Paul the apostle in the first century, uh, as we, we read about here, right? Whatever vision or dream that these people have, or whatever vision or dream that you have, that supposedly comes from God, must always be measured by the ultimate word of God in the Bible that comes to us, that Paul preached. I remember um, uh, a Christian was telling me that uh, in this church in Singapore, which is a fairly big church, um, when the fellowship groups meet together, what they do is instead of opening up and listening to the Word of God, they actually keep quiet and close their eyes and try to hear the Word of God. But the Word of God is sitting there right there in front of them. I remember a children's church um, uh, uh Apparently, this is also another church somewhere in Singapore. They, the kids were told to lie down, right, and to close their eyes and to hear God, and afterwards they were meant to draw what God had told them. But this is not the word of God speaking to you. This is not the way God speaks. God speaks in a very simple, routine, and mundane way by His word. And we are to read His word and to hear it from His word. But the goal of Paul's thanks is not just that they received the word of God and accepted it as the word of God. But if you read verse 13, it says, which is indeed at work in you who believe. See, the purpose of God's word, of Paul's preaching of God's word, is not just reception and acknowledgement that it is the word of God. It's not as if Paul says, okay, you guys have recognized what I've said as the word of God. I've done my duty. I'm successful. 10 out of 10, I can go home happy, right? The word has a purpose. The word has a goal and a direction. And that, that is to work in people's lives. The goal of the word of God is to transform your life. And it's not just knowledge. And that's why if you go back to chapter 1 again, verse 2. All right, what, what does he... Was it Don? Oh, no, maybe not, is it? Okay, maybe if you open your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 2. Look at what he says here. Oh, is there? Okay, great. Okay. He says, We always thank God for all of you, right? Just as he thanks God in verse 13. Mentioning you in all our prayers, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Now, what that means is, 
their work produced by faith, their labor prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by hope came about because they accepted the gospel, but not just accepted the gospel, but but it transformed them, isn't it? It transformed them because now they work in a different way, they labor in a different way, and they endure in a different way. So what's very important is, knowledge is not the goal of the Christian life. Knowledge is not the goal of reading the Bible. But the Word of God actually fulfills its purpose when it works in people's lives. There must be some transformation in the life of the person. Now, I remember reading where one of the dangers of people going to theological college is that they mistake knowledge for spiritual maturity. Right? Knowledge is not equal to spiritual maturity. It is unfortunate, but I know that in places around the world, there are people with great knowledge with PhDs in the Bible who are not Christians, believe it or not. Knowledge does not equate to spiritual maturity. Change lives as a result of the Word of God is the mark of spiritual maturity. Just because you know the Bible well doesn't mean that you're spiritually mature. It is when the Word of God is working in your life that you become spiritually mature. Now I know um, I don't usually use uh, sporting analogies in, 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 in the sermon because I think whenever I hear it, it always sounds a bit corny, right? But I thought oh, yeah, I'll use one today. So anyway, you know in the sport of golf, okay, uh, in the olden days before that golf carts and everything, right? you always have uh, a caddy who carries your golf bag around, right? But he does a lot more than just carry your golf bag around. Okay? Because uh, I've had caddies before when I was younger, and, and basically, the most important thing is not them carrying your bag, it is telling you what to do. Right? So if you, if you look up here, you see the caddy will tell you where you should hit your ball, how far you should hit your ball, what danger you should avoid, what clubs you should be taking, right? how far you should advance the ball before you hit the next shot. And the, and the caddy just doesn't do that. So actually, um, in, in, my, in the last, when I was very young, you actually had different grades of caddies, C, B, and A. And, and the really good caddies, you can pay like 50 to $100 around. They would actually keep you focused. You know, if you hit a bad shot, they would encourage you, they would ask you to keep thinking about the right things to do, they'll keep you focused on all these things that you're supposed to do. And you'd be really stupid not to listen to your caddy because usually the caddy plays on the same golf course every day and they know all the dangers there are there. Now, I think that the Word of God is not like caddy because obviously you can ignore your caddy, right? But the Word of God has a lot more authority than your caddy. But for many Christians, we don't listen to the Word of God. I mean, it's pretty stupid if you ignore the caddy. You know, who's telling you don't hit here or don't do this because they know what they're, they're talking about. But even more so, when the Word of God is telling you to do something, many Christians don't listen to the Word of God. They listen instead to the opinions of the world. They listen to their friends who have well-meaning but wrong advice. They listen to their own desires they listen to their own fears. Or we listen to ourselves because we think we know better than God. 
But that is not the role of the Word of God. The, the role of the Word of God is to be listened to and to be obeyed and to transform you. So today as you reflect, is the Word of God fulfilling its purpose in your life? Are you listening to the Word of God and letting it work in you, changing you, reforming you and sanctifying you through the God's power and the Holy Spirit? Or are you listening to other things apart from the Word of God? Are you drowning out the Word of God in your life by your own desires and your own wishes and your own fears? Are you, instead of listening to the Word of God, fighting against the Word of God? Now, in verse 14, we see that specifically for the Thessalonian case, the Word of God was working in them in the way that they were standing firm in suffering. Because in verse 14 it says, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Now, for Paul, the one of the signs, one of the major signs that showed him that the word of God was working in the lives of the Thessalonian Christians was that they were imitating the churches in Judea and they were standing up in suffering. Now, for those of you who are doing the Bible study, you, you read up all the passages uh, which give you a bit of background, but I think I'll just explain it to you up on this map. Now, this is, um, this is Judea, Palestine down here, Thessalonica up here, okay, Macedonia. Now, obviously, the church first began here in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Palestine. If you look at the book of Acts, uh, there was huge persecution that broke out following the death of Stephen uh, in Jerusalem. And the gospel and all the Christians were forced to flee from this area because of persecution. Much later, the gospel came... Oh, my battery's dying. Came to... Thessalonica, Macedonia. Okay? And when the gospel got here, as you can see as well as we we're reading, persecution also broke out against the Christians. When the persecution broke out here in Judea, how did the Christians respond? They didn't give up their faith. They continued to hold on strongly to their faith. And when the persecution also began in Thessalonica, in Macedonia, they also did the same thing. They also stood firm in, in Christ, in the gospel. So what is being said here is very important. You must read it carefully. Yeah? Because it says, it is actually the word of God, in verse 13, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. Now what he's saying here 
It's not that the Thessalonian Christians, when they face suffering, they look to their brothers in Judea and said, okay, we must imitate them and stand firm in suffering. No, that's not what the Bible is saying. If you look very carefully, it is saying that when they applied the work of God in their lives, and it worked in them, in that specific situation, it led to them reacting at the very same way as their Judean brothers and sisters in suffering. So what it's really saying is, when the word of God is working in Christians, and they face the same situation, doesn't matter whether geographically they're different or culturally they're different, it will lead to the same response. Right? Can you see what's being said here? The word of God at work at Christians when they face the same situation, it doesn't matter where they are in the world, it will always lead to the same response. Okay, so if you see up here in the slide, I try to represent it okay, in the same way. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying that the Thessalonian Christians, he knows the word of God is working in them because they're responding the same way faithfully as the Judean Jewish Christians were responding. And he thanks God for that because if they hadn't responded this way, then he would be very worried instead of giving thanks. And I think this is something that we can learn, isn't it? Because 2,000 years later, instead of being uh, Jews and Gentiles in Greece, we are Christians, Chinese Christians or Indian Christians, who believe in Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And when suffering hits us too, we must respond the same way as the Judean Christians, as the Thessalonican Christians, which is to... Stand firm in suffering. But I think so often in history, we do not let the word of God work in our lives and stand for God and with God in suffering. So I was reading this book. Um, actually, Simpson lent me like a year ago. I still haven't returned it to him, right? About, about Christians in Nazi Germany. And Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany in 1933. And when Adolf Hitler came to power in Nazi Germany in 1933, one-third of Germany was Catholic and two-thirds was Protestant. Okay, It was the most Christian country in the whole of Europe. It had great churches and renowned theological colleges. So the question that people ask is, why was it unable to resist Hitler? Why was it willing to allow all the, the abuses, especially the killing of the Jews, in its midst when they were so Christianized? And I remember this quote, that uh, it's up here, that came from the book. It says, The crisis was primarily a struggle of the church against itself. It was a struggle of the false and the true, the swastika and the cross. It was a struggle within the church that had voluntarily embraced the German nationalism of the day. Okay, This guy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you can read him out, he's a very uh, famous guy, insisted, that only Christ, a Christ who was free of German national ideals and culture, could rescue the church at this critical hour. So the church in Nazi Germany was given a choice. You either follow the word of God, or you embrace German nationalism and culture and pride and ideals. And unfortunately, the church chose to embrace the German pride and, and culture and nationalistic ideals rather than embrace and listen and let the word of God work in its heart. And it's, in, in the same way, and Christians of every generation face the same choice. Do we listen to the word of God, stand with the word of God and suffer for it? Or do we listen to the mood of the day? So I think that 
in the world that we live in today in Singapore, one of the pressures against us, or three, actually the three main pressures against Christians around the world today, one is uh, male and female distinctions in marriage and church, in terms of sexual orientation and sexual identity in the world, and our absolute conviction that Jesus is the only way to God. I think societies all around the world um, find those things offensive <coughs> in Christians. This icon a bit cold, I must turn it down. <clears throat> so the, the question is, will you listen to the word of God and um, respect that and stand by it? Oh, thanks, Harris. Or will we allow ourselves to listen to the pressures of society? Right? Will you let the word of God work in you? Now, someone sent me this amazing article last week. Right, I'll, I'll send it to you by email next week so you can read it to the full. But if, if you look at this article... This guy uh, wrote England, and he's a gay activist, and he actually supports the church's stand on against uh, same-sex marriage. But what he says is, is really amazing because he doesn't believe in God, he doesn't believe in the Word of God, he doesn't believe in the Bible, but he believes that the church should stand against same-sex marriage. Why? Because if you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, then you need to be consistent and stand by it regardless of what everybody else thinks. So he gave this really powerful illustration. He said, you know when Moses in Exodus chapter 32 comes down from the mountain after receiving the word of God and, and all the Israelites have you know, decided to worship the golden calf and uh, decided to have a pagan revelry and new dancing and, and, and sexual morality, whatever. How did Moses react? Well, this is what uh, Exodus chapter 32 says, right? When, when Moses approached the camp and he saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf and he, that they had burned and burned it in the fire and he ground it to powder, to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. You see, Moses heard the word of God and the word of God said, do this. And he came down and he saw everybody else doing something else and he says, God said this, so this is the way we're going to do it, and this is the right thing to do. But as this guy was saying, this is completely different from the established church when it responded in Ireland after uh, the same-sex referendum approved gay marriage. Because the established church figures said, well, we need to seek a new direction for the church. We need to listen to the people and maybe we need to revise our understanding because God is showing us a new way. Right? He said, that's not the way that Moses reacted, right? Because if it is the word of God, then it is the truth and the absolute truth and we, we must be willing to stand by it even if the majority of people are against it. I remember in church history, there was this guy called Athanasius and he believed that the Bible said that Jesus was God when everybody in his day believed that Jesus was a creature. And even the Roman emperor exiled him at the time. And his friends said to him, Athanasius, you have to change your mind because the whole world is against you. And Athanasius is recorded as saying, well, if the whole world is against me, then it's Athanasius against the world. Because he believed that if this is what the Bible said, then I'm going to stand by it. And when Martin Luther... Uh, spoke up against the indulgences of the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church asked him to recant. 
And the whole weight of the Catholic Church was against him. And he said, I will not recant unless someone shows me from the Word of God and the Bible that I'm wrong. And I think that if we look at the Thessalonian case, the Judean Christians, that's what they believe. If you stand by the Word of God, then you must stand firm in the Word of God. You must have a backbone of steel and say, this is what God's Word says and I'm willing to stand by it and stand by even in suffering. Now the passage goes on to talk about the Jews and how the Jews tried to uh, stop the gospel going out. They killed Jesus, they killed the prophets, they drove them out, they drove uh, Paul and his workers out of Thessalonica. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to God so that they may be saved. Now I think here as we look at this passage, um, some commentators uh, condemn Paul for this and say, oh, you know, this is really so racist what Paul is saying against the Jews. You know, he he's anti-Semitic. Uh, he's ranting. Now it's very easy to forget that Paul himself was a Jew, an ethnic Jew, a cultural Jew. Judean Christians were Jews. And Paul himself wanted of all things, above all things, to save the Jews. So here in the book of Romans, chapter 10 and 11, if you see up here, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. I'm talking to you Gentiles and as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I take, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow rouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Now Paul here is not ranting, right? He's not against the Jews as a race, but he's against them because most of all, if you look here in the passage, in verse 16, it is because it is they are stopping in their efforts to keep them from speaking the word of God to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. See, look carefully at God's word here in verse 15 and 16. What is the purpose of God's word, the word of God that Paul preaches? The Word of God finds its purpose not just in working in people's lives, but in saving people. And the Jews, in their efforts to stop Paul and the apostles from speaking to the Gentiles, stops them from being saved. Now, Paul is right here to be angry, isn't it? Uh, I mean, if you ever go and watch uh, videos on Stomp, you know, you ever go and Stomp? Okay, sometimes you go and Stomp, and then you see people posting videos of how there's this ambulance on the right lane with the, 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 the sirens blaring and the lights going on. And then there's this, some road hog in front, hogging the road, not giving way, right? And then, the, you know, you, and then you, you watch it for a few minutes. And then down below, you have all the comments, right? And then, obviously, uh, everybody comments how angry they are because... This person may be stopping someone from going to the hospital and the person may die. Right? And then some people say, oh, imagine if he's your own father or your own mother in, in the ambulance. People are rightly angry because you're stopping the ambulance from saving somebody with your own, with your own um, I guess, laziness or your own selfishness. But the lesson here is not for you who are drivers to get out of the way of the ambulance, right? 
But the lesson here is to show you just what is at stake when the word of God is is prevented from being preached to people. Because in Paul's eyes and in God's eyes, you are stopping people from being saved. You're preventing the salvation of people. And as a result, it's not just Paul who's angry, but it is God who is angry. And God says people who stop the word of God being preached, stop the word of God doing his work in saving people, are actually just heaping up sins for themselves to the limit. And the wrath of God has come upon them at last. You know, it's a bit like, again, using a driving illustration, right? It's a bit like going uh, through the red light camera over and over again every day and not realizing it. And all your traffic demerit points and all your fines are just piling up, right? Every time you go through. And that's what's actually happening here. Whenever people are stopping the proclamation of the gospel, stopping the work of God being done to save people, they're just heaping up their sins. Now, I'm not sure how we are meant to understand this, but to me, uh, you may disagree with me here, but to me, as we read this, it's actually a warning, isn't it? In a sense, it's a warning and a comfort to us as Christians. When when we see direct opposition to the preaching of the Word of God, it, it, it does make us sad. It does hurt us. Especially when we are the ones who are trying to preach the Gospel or the Word of God. But at the same time, there is a truth involved here that the people who are stopping us from preaching the Word of God or other people from preaching the Word of God, God will actually bring them to account one day. That the sins that they are, I guess, willingly or unknowingly doing will actually come home one day and they will have to actually account to God for it. Now, as we've looked at this passage, it's really all about uh, the Word of God and how we respond to it. And if you want to boil it down, it's very easy, isn't it? It is uh, The Bible is the Word of God. It's meant to work in us. It works on us when we suffer for it. And the Word of God is meant to save us. So in conclusion, I think that this is a great reminder today of what the Word of God really is. Its characteristics and its implementation in our life. Because more and more today, the Word of God, especially among Christians, is not being allowed to be the Word of God in the church and our lives. Um, In liberal theological colleges all around the world, people are dismembering and mutilating the Word of God. Uh, There's this thing up here, I remember, next slide, called the Jesus Seminar. Okay, And in the Jesus Seminar, what they do is they try to find the authentic words of God in the Bible. Okay, so next slide. So what they do is, okay, your thing is quite funny, lah. Okay, if, if I, but but actually, it's not. It would, it would be funny if it's not so real, right? So what they do is, they have all these uh, biblical scholars or, or, or PhD people, and they come into a room, and they're all given these little tokens of different colors. You see, like you know, red, lah, black, gray, and pink, right? And what they do is they vote in the Bible according to what they believe is really the words of God and what is not. So basically then, the Bible is dismembered, right? Because imagine all of us here get these little beads 
And then we, we all sort of start voting on the book of Thessalonians saying, you know, I really don't like verse 2. Maybe I'll give it a black. Uh, you know, actually I like verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 13. Oh, maybe I'll give it a red. You can't treat God's word that way, isn't it? It's either the word of God in its entirety and you sit under the, its authority or you reject it totally. You, you can't play with it and say, I want to pick and choose what it is. And we all come together as a democratic system and decide what we like about it and choose what we want from it. But it's not just the Jesus seminar which is the problem, right? Because it re- I think this, the Jesus seminar represents the mood of society as a whole. That it doesn't want to, to accept the word of God in its entirety as a word of God and to sit under its authority. I know there's a very famous blogger, I was reading their blog just last week, and they refuse to believe the Bible, and I think this blogger is very honest because this blogger said, I don't want to accept the Bible because I don't like telling, I don't like people telling me what to do. And I think that comes down to it, isn't it? That, that, that's in a nutshell, the mood of our world. We don't want to accept the Bible as the word of God because we don't like people telling me what to do. But that's not the way the Word of God works. If it is the Word of God, it is the absolute truth, the absolute authority. We must let it work in us, must be willing to suffer for it, to obey it, because ultimately the Word of God is what saves us. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you for your Word today for how the Thessalonian Christians recognized the words of the Apostle Paul for what it truly was, that it was your word that you were speaking through Paul. We thank you for how they allowed that work, that word to work within them, that they were willing to suffer in obedience for that word, and that there were truly uh, many obstacles uh, in those days, that the Jews themselves opposed the preaching of this word. They opposed the preaching of this word and so stopped the salvation of people. Dear Father, as we, we come here today in Singapore, in the 21st century, we pray that the lessons those 2,000 years ago may continue to apply in our lives. That as we come to your word, that we will let it work in us with great power, and through your Holy Spirit. That your word will teach us and instruct us and transform us and that we'll be willing to suffer for it as we obey it. And that we will see the necessity of preaching it because it saves others. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.